New Jersey is providing truly historic tax relief. Living in New Jersey is about to become more affordable under the new Anchor Property Tax Relief Program created by Governor Murphy and the legislature. The state will soon deliver over 2 billion in tax relief to more than 2 million homeowners and renters. Eligible New Jerseyans can receive up to 1500. Apply today. Even if you didn't qualify under the previous program, you may now. The deadline is February 28th. Visit anchor.nj.gov. Hey everybody, it's Sadia Khan and this is Immigrantly, a podcast that is dedicated to switching up the narrative of the immigrant experience. If your new year's resolution was to listen to more podcasts, I hope it was that. Or maybe expose yourself to new people and stories you are in the right place. Let's just hope this resolution lasts longer than most people's do. And of course, we are all over the social media. So if you want to get to know the Immigrantly team even more, check us out on Instagram at ImmigrantlyPod, Twitter at Immigrantly underscore pod. And even on TikTok. Yes, guys, we are on TikTok at Immigrantly Podcast. On to today's guest. I'm really excited to speak to this guest because she has experienced something that not many of us have. Imagine how you would feel if at 31 years old, your mother told you that the man you thought was your father wasn't. All of a sudden, your identity, culture, and family relationships are upturned. And as for myself, I know I would have a billion questions for my mom. This is exactly what happened to Carmen Rita Wong, a journalist, entrepreneur, and personal finance expert. Once the host of a TV program called On the Money, Carmen has worked with CNN, CBS, CNBC. and NBC and she was a financial advice columnist for four different magazines including Glamour and Good Housekeeping quite a resume i must say but she's also the author of five books including the most recent memoir why didn't you tell me carmen's mother is dominican but carmen spent the first 31 years of her life believing that she was also half chinese through her father who she calls papi wong it is in this memoir that she discusses the whirlwind of her identity and the complex relationship with her mother as a result like all families it's complicated I am so intrigued to hear more about how such a revelation in her adulthood has formed who she is today. So let's get started. Carmen, welcome to Immigrantly. Thank you so much for having me. You have the best podcast voice, by the way. Oh my gosh. <laughs> my kids are petrified of my voice. I have two oh. teenage daughters. I have one teenage daughter. And I know how that goes, right? Mm-hmm. It's like 
we don't want to listen to your voice. It sounds weird. Yeah, mine says the same thing. I don't know why. I don't know what their problem is. Well, she calls it my TV voice because I used to do TV, right? And host. And she was like, Mom, you're talking in your TV voice. Oh, my gosh. Like, That's exactly oh, what they tell me. This is not your natural voice. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know what that even means. It's called work, people. Right? <laughs> Everybody has to, you know, do professional things at work. They wouldn't want you to be professional at home. Right. I like that. I like that approach. So the book. Yes. I am a slow reader, just an FII, and I'm reading your book and every page is a new revelation. It's so profound, beautiful. It basically deconstructs family dynamic, which can be imperfect, right? It is more imperfect than not most of the times. Yes. For our listeners who don't know or are not familiar, can you give us a crash course of sorts about your family and what was that secret that your mom kept from you? Oh, so many. Well, the family, of course, you could think is, you know, complicated, as you said, like every page is a new revelation. But essentially, I am the daughter of immigrants, as you know, I'm an American daughter of immigrants. However, not many people share this background of um, being born into a married couple where my mother was Dominican and uh, my father at the time was Chinese. And he was much older than my mother. It was an arranged marriage situation for my mother and her family's immigration paperwork, as we hear a lot of those stories these days. But essentially, I started out here in, in New York City, in uptown in Harlem with these two very different parents. My mother was Afro-Latina and Papi Wong was, was Chinese. And they divorced and she remarried an Anglo-American. Mm. And he moved us to New Hampshire, which, you know, considering that we are um, brown of black descent with Chinese names, it was not a good experience. But then they went on to have four daughters in their marriage. So I had an older brother who was also a Wong And the two of us went from Harlem to New Hampshire, and it was very, very shocking. But our cultural identity was very important. Cultural, with an S, I guess, identities were very important because we had the Dominican family and also Chinatown. But in the end, many, many years later, decades later, as my mother is dying from cancer, she decides to confirm something that my stepfather told me, that Papi Wong is not my father. Mm -hmm. And she tells me another story, which she takes to her grave because she basically made up a second story that she had these men believe, had me believe then for another decade until DNA, genetic you know, testing came about and I was able to find out the truth. But this book is really about um, kind of figuring out, you know, why do our parents, I would say particularly immigrant women, really have this pressure and need, especially um, back in the 60s, 70s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, to keep these secrets, Mm. to make stories up about who they are and who we are, and then to put all of their hopes and dreams into us as their American children. And what all that conflict brings up and the idea of your identity um, here in this country, what is it? So I wrote it like a mystery so it's very page turning, you know, everything is, is you just keep like, okay, what's next? What's next? Because two reasons. One, why does anybody read memoir? Why should anyone read your story right. if they don't necessarily have the same background? And so few people have my background. It needs to be, to use 
the word that people don't like. It needs to be entertaining in a way. It needs to engage you. But two, so you feel what it felt like in my life, which was every day was what? And, and what's happening, you know, and, and that's the way my life felt. So by, you know, reading or listening to my book, you kind of get this idea of what my life has been like, which has been pretty intense, pretty intense. Carmen, it's so interesting as I'm listening to you. I am an immigrant mother, right? So I am that immigrant mother who makes decisions based on what I think is good for my kids. I came to the U.S. in my 20s mm-hmm. and... It was hard to navigate, despite the fact that I knew the language. I came for college. Life was different. And yet I felt so out of place in certain places, predominantly white spaces, right? Yes. And I want to go back to what you said about your mom moving to New Hampshire, which was obviously quite traumatizing for you and your brother. But I wonder if in doing so, she was also giving you guys tools to succeed in life and to know how to navigate white spaces, because Mm -hmm. that is a huge advantage, right? So sure, in order to be successful, hard work matches, work ethos matches. But in the US, which is extremely hierarchical racially, knowing that vernacular is extremely important Believe you me, I still struggle to fit in those white spaces. Although I live in a predominantly white neighborhood, same story, wanted to give our kids the best of everything. And yet I get anxious. So talk to me a little bit about that. Oh, but I do too. (laughs) Yeah, I'll tell you. Oh, you do too. Oh, absolutely. No, because in living in the white space, I always felt like an outcast, an outsider. I wasn't treated like they were, of course. The racism was huge. But yes, to your point, just like anything in life, there's a good side and a bad side. The good side is, and I used to try to explain this to my brother who held a lot more, there was a lot more racism. When you're a brown man or or black Asian man, you get a lot more racism. And that limited his life in New Hampshire quite a bit. So he didn't have any good feelings about it. We used to talk about it and I say, you know what? But we got, like you said, to live amongst these people that run things. Right. So we know how they are and we know how they work. We know how they speak. We know what their values are. We know all of those things. But I'll tell you what the flip side is, is that when we talk about success in this country, success is what is defined by the majority culture, which is white success. I have to say, now that I'm in my 50s, I define success very differently. Mm. And frankly, of course, I'm privileged enough to be able to say that, right? And to raise my teenage daughter in a way where she values things more than just grades and income and titles, right? I want her to be able to be fulfilled. Right. I paid a very big price for American success, a very painful price. You know, it's so hard to even look at it. It was so painful. So I would say that that's the big cost that my mother and we all paid for this American idea and definition of success. She was isolated from her whole family. We moved there and our new dad, because, you know, because he was Anglo-American and he himself was the son of Italian immigrants Mm -hmm. who decided only English, only American food, only American music, only American television, only American. So it was all that. We, We lost ourselves. 
And we were told that who we were as Dominican Chinese people was bad and wrong. So it was painful. And it's so unfortunate that for you, it was happening within the confines of your home. Yeah. Because for us, if I were to draw parallels, I myself at home, I speak the language that I want to speak. Great. I say things to my kids that I want to say. And I cannot imagine having that restriction put on you. When you look back, why do you think he did that? Because that was what that generation was told being American is. So he told us when I asked him once, why would you do this? Like, it's obvious that speaking more than one language and knowing one or one culture is such an advantage. Why? And he said that his father, when they came through, I mean, that generation came through Ellis Island. Mm -hmm. He was like five, I think, when he came. They would beat the children if they didn't speak English. Oh, wow. So they were told, you are in America, and you know that there are parts of this country that are like that. You're in America. America, you speak English, you know, that sort of thing. That's the mentality that was predominant then and still in this country in many places is. And the advantage that you're giving your children, which I think is huge and would have spared us all so much pain, is the outside world that you live in in the United States, meaning school and pop culture and everything else, is going to make your children American enough. Like they're going to be American no matter what you do. Absolutely. So at home, keep the language, keep the music, keep the food, keep, you know, have some traditions and have some pride in the cultures you come from. Because the outside world is going to do a really good job of not only making them American, but telling them that those things may be bad or wrong or less than. So you got to hoist it up at home. You know, when I talk to my kids and I may be on the other end of the spectrum, I am very intentional about them knowing their language, culture. Wonderful. I remember recently I was talking to my daughter and her name is not an easy name to pronounce. I was talking to her and she was like, oh, you know, at this coffee shop, this is how they pronounce my name. And I was like, but you should have corrected them. Yeah. yeah. She calls me Amma. And she was like, Amma, I can't do it every single time. It is taxing. It is tiring. It's exhausting. It is exhausting. Yeah. And I was like, no, but you have to keep doing until they know how to pronounce your name. Carmen, I want to go back to your relationship with your mom. I was listening to one of your podcast episodes and something that you said really struck me. You said this book is your conversation with your mom's ghost. Mm -hmm. I wonder what is the most challenging part or what was the most challenging part of that metaphorical conversation that you referred to even now when you've reconciled with so much and there's so much out in the open. Well, to write about a parent that caused a lot of pain, I would say the best way to see your parents, um, once you grow up, <laughs> once you, you get older, and also it helps that I've had many years of therapy, is to see them just as people. Yes. And that is what took a lot of work for me. It took years of work for me to really just, it's not so much like this distancing, like I have to push her in the distance. And of course, since she's passed, it's a little easier, but to really understand human beings just have babies. Like they don't take get university degrees for it. They don't like, you know, they're not healthy psychologically before they have children. They just reproduce. 
And so these people are just going to be people and they make their mistakes. They come with their own trauma, their own generational baggage. To see her as a separate person allowed me to let her, you know, put this in air quotes, talk to me Mm -hmm. in a way that wasn't loaded with my own pain. Because if you're stuck in your own pain, you can't hear or see or understand the other person because, you know, it's muffled. It's so muffled. So in order to like put aside my own pain and see her as a separate individual human being, it's not so much forgiveness. It's not forgiveness. <laughs> I, don't, I don't forgive unless, you know, there's an apology and change of behavior, blah, 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 which she didn't do. But I do understand her. And that has brought me so much peace so much peace. I mean, it wasn't easy, but it's it enabled me to kind of just get why she did what she did and why I do what I do. That's a great segue into my next question. As a mom, how do we decide what to tell our kids and what to hold back? Well, I have a teenage daughter, just like you do have teenage daughters. She is very excited for this book. She's always so she saw me go through years it took to, you know, write, to sell it, to get it out. And she's so proud. She's my greatest PR person, but she says she's not going to read it. She's not ready. Oh, wow. And I agree with her. I said, no, you know what? You're not ready because there's a lot in there. You know, I, there's an assault. There's, you know, there's a lot of things that at her age would be incredibly difficult to see her mother in that way, experiencing that kind, those kinds of pain. So she'll read it. Um, and I have two nieces who, who are 19. They're twins. One read it and one is with my daughter. She can't read it yet. So I think it's, it's, to me, it's like, what do I tell her? How much she is able to manage at the time. But I tell her stories all the time. Like I'm sure you do, right? Yeah. I am that typical mother who's like, well, this is what I had to deal with, you know, and back in my day. And I do. Um, but I've pulled back a bit because she gets it. And you're right. When I look at my relationship with my daughters, both of them, I am pretty sure there are things that I haven't discussed with them because I think they're still too young and I hold back. Yeah. And that speaks to the core of how parenting works for everyone. And I wonder if your mom was probably trying to do the same. Maybe she thought at the time that you were too young or she was trying to protect you. Do you think that was what she thought? She was protecting herself. Hmm. Wait, you get to the end of the book. (laughs) You'll see she was really protecting herself. I was 31 years old before she died. And I found out that Papi Wong was not my father. So I was plenty old. It was really about protecting herself. And that's twofold. One is her inherent, you know, narcissism. But the second is, what were women allowed to be and how are they allowed to live back then, especially in a very patriarchal culture where her father basically married her off at 19 and he was abusive. Talk to me a little bit about that, Carmen. What do you mean by how women were expected to live? Yeah, well, in a lot of families, this happens when you come from cultures of patriarchy, right? I'm speaking specifically for Dominican culture and that she grew up with. You know, her father ruled the house, made all the decisions. He was very violent. He marries her off to somebody who Papi Wong was a gangster, full-fledged gangster. And he was abusive and Here she was just trapped in this new country 
And then she's working as well. She and, and my, my grandmother, my abuela, were um, seamstresses for Oscar de la Renta, who was Dominican and hired many of the Dominican immigrant women. So then she was being exposed to all these other women and all these other things and, and, and going around the city on the subway and learning so much. And, but she was a very, very intelligent, smart, curious person. And her education stopped at 15. And she wasn't allowed to continue her education. She basically was treated as a body, right? What was she supposed to do? And how was she supposed to conduct herself? Now, you could say, oh, she could have done this and she could have done that. I don't judge her in that way. No, she couldn't have. No, this woman was had no control. Um, and then she married, she thought she was marrying an, an Anglo-American man who was going to give her that, you know, that American dream. But man, is that a trap. <laughs> it was its own trap because yet again, she gave up who she was as a person to move to a place where she could live amongst the whiteness, have he built her the house with the picket fence and, the, you know, all of that stuff. But then she was pregnant and pregnant and pregnant and pregnant, and she still never got to be who she wanted to be. Mm. And she didn't feel like she had, you know, the ability to until they divorced. And a few years before she died, she got her GED. She started taking college courses. She started traveling. And then cancer took her, and it was too late. So that's what I mean by like, in that culture, it's like being in a in a prison that's built around you and built inside of you and you do what you can do. Absolutely. And I think a lot of cultures are patriarchal. Pakistani culture is patriarchal for one. American culture is patriarchal. Yeah, yeah, very, very. But I think had she had a non-patriarchal father, right? Had she had, or she had, she had a father who was open to her getting an education, for example, or she had a mother that encouraged education. And it wasn't about get married. Oh my gosh, you're this age, you should be married. Which, which by the way, then in my extended Dominican family, as I got older through my life, they were like, you're how old? And you live by yourself? Oh my gosh. And the, the gossip was, I must be a, a whore because I live by, <laughs> because I live by myself. I'm college educated. I can pay my own rent, but I live by myself. So I must be a whore. So, so when you live and eat and breathe all of that, what does it say to you about who you are and what you can do? Carmen, you talk a lot about your grandmother in your book. You've yes. talked about her on different podcasts and you do it in an endearing way. And it really melts my heart. But I have a question which I've been wanting to ask you. Do you have any insights into what your mom's relationship with your grandmother was? And what did that tell you about your grandma's dynamic with your mom as a parent versus with you as a grandparent? My grandmother was the quiet, suffering wife of a very abusive man. So you could say, you know, she wasn't an enabler, but she didn't feel like she could do anything. Mm. Um, and she also wasn't his wife. She was his second partner, let's say. Right. His wife lived, he brought his wife and, and those children and put them in another place in New York and then brought, you know, my grandmother and their kids. Um, she was not in a position of power to do much. The great thing that my abuela had that unfortunately didn't make it to my mother, I think because of all the abuse um, from my grandfather was my grandmother was full of love, full of love. And she loved me like crazy and was able to. 
because most of the time that she was with me was she was, um, as we say in these days now, babysitting, which is not what grandparents do. They take care of you, but you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> um, they take care of you. And, and so it'd be us alone more. And she was able to be probably the mother she wanted to be. And she was wonderful. But unfortunately, that kind of parenting, you know, it didn't make it to my mother mm. because it, it just um, you can have one loving parent. But if the other one is just so over the top, you, the ability to survive it is difficult. The environment becomes extremely toxic. Very, 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 very. There's no doubt. I mean, I, I make a joke in the book, which isn't a joke, but you have to laugh <laughs> at these things, Sadia. I say, you know, three kids in my mother's family, my mother, her sister, and her brother, and she lucked out because she made it out only with personality disorders. The other two, my uncle is paranoid schizophrenic who's been in um, public housing most of his life and tremendous amount of drugs and medications, and my aunt has been hospitalized many, many times. She's been very mentally ill. So, yeah. Survival. That's that's what it was about. That I will say this about my mother. She was definitely a survivor and she imbued that into me. Barbara, I want to pivot a little and talk a little bit about your early adulthood. So you've talked a lot about post-discovery, right? When you discovered that Bobby Wong was not your biological dad. Mm. I am curious to know, how did you navigate your family and career in your teenage years, early 20s? What was that time period like? Oh, my goodness. Well, the 20s were very different from the 30s, very different from the 40s. So the, the 20s was, I mean, basically, I just had to come back home to New York City as soon as possible. That was my number one goal, because my brother and I had the experience of knowing that New York City was our home and we would come back and visit a lot. Um, it's where my identity was. So I came back as soon as I could. And I just had this um, in my 20s, what my mother gave to me, which was part of the kind of American experiment. I joke that she raised me as an entitled white man. Oh, wow. And what does that mean? Yes. What does that mean? <laughs> what that means is it's funny. Mindy Kaling said the same thing. And I was like, that's exactly what I'm talking about. She raised me with the belief and the idea that I am just as worthy, I am just as able, and I am just as entitled to do whatever I want to do in this country as anyone else, including white folks and white men. Mm. And because I was growing up with a white stepfather, I saw him foibles and all. He was fairly successful, but I could see that there was no superiority in anyone that I was living around, that... They were just as, you know, great and bad as all cultures that I was surrounded with were. The difference between us was completely flattened out. They were just humans. Right. <laughs> and, you know, in, in psych, they say, you know, the differences uh, within groups are just as big as the differences between groups. So we're all just on the same kind of, you know, U-curve. So I approached my career very much with just total gumption. And total, you know, showing up to the temp agency being like, they're like, oh, well, you can take a job with this much an hour. And I said, um, no, I'm worth twice that. And I need a salary and benefits. I love it. And they say, well, we don't have anything for you. And I would go home, freak out, have an ulcer because I was in so much student loan debt and credit card debt and I had rent to pay. But they would call me two days later and be like, okay, we have a job for you. And it happens to be a Christie's auction house. And I was an art history mage. I was 
crazy. So my my whole career is a mix of luck, guts, and just being able to handle it. Um, but I didn't have any financial help. My brother helped me out by letting me live with him for three months and his new wife, which was the biggest thing they could have done. But that was my 20s. And then I ended up living in South America. Oh, wow. How was that experience like? I lived in Chile, um, spent a few weeks in Argentina, and I lived in Mexico City. Well, Sadia, talk about identity as an immigrant. I go over there. They're calling me gringa. I'm not surprised. I'm an American, right? So when so when you go, as you know, probably when your kids, you know, if they go back to visit your family, they're like, oh, these Americans. And that's the thing is I was shocked by it. Instead of being like welcomed into Latinaness, it was, oh, hey, American girl, you know, and I was just shocked. But that's what that was like. And my 20s was full of lessons like that, including a starter marriage, which was a disaster and divorce. But those were important times, the, the important, important lessons for me and being able to live and travel. These were all dreams I had, all dreams I had since I was a kid. But, you know, daughter of immigrants, you're not allowed to be anything but a doctor or a lawyer or an MBA. So my brother was the MBA and I wasn't really allowed to do what I wanted to do. But in the end, I managed to end up, I just wanted to be a writer and a performer. And I ended up at Money Magazine in Time, Time Inc., and that was the beginning of my career in media. And I also got a master's degree at, at Columbia University, which is where we lived around and I had always wanted to go to. So I, I did that as well. It was, a, it, it was a lot, Sadia. It was a lot. How did your mom see your success professionally? She didn't get to see my success, really. She didn't get to see me on TV, unfortunately. Um, my stepfather did and my other family members. But she got to see my first byline. So my first magazine article with my name on it before she died, she got to see. When in terms of my like being able, you know, the first woman in the family to go to college, let alone get a high school degree, I would say that there was, there was pride, but also detachment. How so? Because I was a projection. My mother wanted all the things that I had. So the idea of being like, oh, I'm so proud of you. No. If I came home with A's, it was, well, that's what I expect of you. That's it. Like that was nothing was said. It was just that was the expectation. You're expected to succeed. She was very upset that I wasn't pre-med. And I went into college pre-med and then changed my major a couple times. She was very upset that I wasn't going to be a doctor. So, you know, it's one of those never good enough. <laughs> you know, it's so interesting. All of the things that you're saying, Carmen, at some point in the last 20 years, I'm pretty sure I've either said it, felt it, or thought of it, because as an immigrant parent, I guess because we leave everything else and we come to a new country to start over, we know that there is no safety blanket for our kids right? beyond our existence in this new country and what we are trying to build. So the best we can do is try to give them tools to succeed. So medicine, oh, you know, it's a yep. good marketable profession, law, engineering. And that's what we grow up with. Like I grew up in Pakistan. A lot of people in my family were either engineers, doctors, yep. a few lawyers, but lawyers were frowned upon. It was like, oh my God, law, oh. why are you doing law? Because in Pakistan, law is very different from the way it is in the US. Right, right. But I've been, again, very aware of that dichotomy, that bias. And with my kids, I'm like, you know, you should do whatever you want. And yet I will steer them 
in a certain direction, right? So my daughter, she's doing poli-sci, econ, but then I'm like, could you just add a few quant courses to it? Just oh, a no, few, right? <laughs> no, she's going to be a quant. No. <laughs> yeah. That's an immigrant mentality, not because we want to torture our kids, FYI. Yeah. It's because we think they don't have the tools to succeed, especially in a predominantly white setting, which is unfortunate. Yes. But I hear you. I hear you when you say your mom could have said something nice when you got any. That would have made a huge difference, right? Yeah, you know. I try to do that more with my kids. I'm a different generation. But at the same time, sometimes it's the same thing. It's like, oh, great. And then you move on and kids are like, but you're supposed to say a lot more. And I wonder if it is also cultural in a way. Very cultural. Yeah. I come from a culture where humility is prioritized. There is no such thing as bragging or bragging about your success and what you have. Right. So for me, it's almost blasphemous to say something nice that I've done or achieved or my kids have achieved. And I wonder that American culture that seeps into our characters, the way there is so much value to, I guess, self Promote? Yes, self-promote. And I wonder if that causes this rift between immigrant parents and kids. I think all of what you just said, and I think a big part of it is too, is that you understand the fear that we have when you don't grow up with a safety net, which I did not at all. I had my first full-time job when I was 11 in the summer. You live in that fear and that uncertainty. And even after you make it, you still are afraid for your children because you know how difficult it is. You know how you know how things could go wrong. So for example, my daughter, unfortunately, um, has been disabled by long COVID. So she went from, you know, skipping a grade and easily getting straight A's to now having trouble because physically she's not able to be as rigorous with the work. And I've had to completely, and she's so ambitious, so full of energy, taking all these other, you know, additional things and classes and all this stuff to now just focusing on getting through school and, and getting B's. And all I want her to do is get B's because anything more than that would be, would distress her too much psychologically, right? So I've had to completely change my frame of reference, but you better believe that every day, and I'm still working with a therapist to try to not let fear my fear lead my parenting. To have faith in our children and their ability to get things done and their abilities in general is a big leap, but I think that that enables them to feel stronger about themselves with less anxiety. I totally agree. But what are some of your fears as a parent? I'm just afraid. Well, in her situation, is very different, right? I'm afraid that she won't be able to work in a job that can accommodate her disabilities. I'm afraid she won't recover enough. But I would say before she was ill, <laughs> I didn't have those fears. I didn't have those fears. I think with, of course, you know, what's happened to the virus in the past several years, I think I'm sure for many parents, even if their kids are not sick or they're not sick or nothing's happened in their family, there is this like cloud of like stuff can happen that we have no control over. Yeah. Stuff can happen to our children, to our parents, you know, these things can happen. So it's a different kind of environment that we're raising our kids in because then also look at the economy. Right. 
it's so much less predictable. And I spent 20 years covering the economy and finance, not to mention my stepfather too, growing up with him in that world. So I've got decades of experience and I can tell you that this is a very different place we're in. Mm. So how do you raise your kids in that place? One of the things that I'm, I'm always after finding peace, one of those things is just having some faith in their ability to do things and to manage things and having faith in yourself as a parent that you're doing your best. And the fact that you're simply aware is like huge. (laughs) It's a huge part. Even if you're not perfect, it's huge that you're aware. And sometimes just recognizing our limitations, limitations of human capacity and human existence. Yes. Because a lot of times we think we can do everything and we can't and it's okay. Yeah, I have lately reconciled with this notion of as a human, I have limitations. It's like, you know, just recognizing your own limitations sometimes can be very cathartic. Yeah. And you know what, Sadia, the only thing that we don't spend enough time on that I believe is so essential. And again, having covered economics and finance forever and personal finance, I can tell you this, your relationships with people. Right. I'm talking about your family relationships, your friends. Because when times are tough, these are the people that will help you. These are the people that will, you know, one of the things is that, um, again, I used to talk to my brother. My brother was very much stuck on the idea of the meritocracy. If you just do well enough, you can always get ahead. And at one point he was laid off and he was struggling and he couldn't believe how hard he was struggling. And I was like, well, what organizations are you in? Who are you meeting? Have you called your friends? The idea that job hunting and building a career is just as much about your relationships as it is about your abilities is something that we got to get our kids to focus on and understand. And I think is, you know, the immigrant parenting of like, it's just about the A's. No, 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 (laughs) (laughs) no, 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 no. Let me tell you the secrets of Anglo culture. Okay. The secret is it's really a lot of like, who's your college roommate? You know, who's it? But I really took that on early and learned that lesson early. And it was one of the biggest lessons I learned. And it's so, so, so true. It is so true. Believe (laughs) you me, as an immigrant, I know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kamit, there's something that you said on one of the podcasts and I wrote it. Oh, It was so thought-provoking. You ask, when do we stop being creations of our parents and society's pressure? It really spoke to me. How do we strike a balance between letting ourselves be expressive and be who we are and also recognizing our culture and welcoming tools that we are given to succeed by our parents, by society, but at the same time, not losing ourselves? That's the key there. It's, do you know who you are? And if you can have all the tools and, and all the preparation, I've had, you know, some, some elders say to me, well, look, your mom did a great job. Look at you, you know, that sort of thing. And I'm like, yeah, read the book again. <laughs> what it is, is when you are a projection of your parents, and again, this is not about, you know, blaming them in any way. This is called survival. When you are projected upon by the outside society, oh, you're a woman, oh, you're an immigrant, oh, you're black or you're brown, or you're this, that. Um, it's hard to know who you are and to be able to be secure in who you are and defining yourself. 
Now, we can't walk around and say, I'm blue and expect everybody to think you're blue, but you can walk around and be like, okay, what do I enjoy? What makes up who I am? Where do I, what what are the things I didn't get to do? Or what was really my wish versus someone else's? What is the expectation that I know what I can do for myself versus what society says I can do as a brown woman, right? Learning to kind of parse those things out knowing your abilities, your strengths, um, you know, where you need work, that takes your own work. It took me years and it's still taking me years. But I have to say, coming to the point where I'm realizing who I am, it's seismic Hmm. in a way, because you start to realize, at least I've realized that decades of my life were run by another part of me that wasn't me. Hmm. It was like a framework built by other people. I was fulfilling their dreams. I was going along with what was expected of me. Remember I mentioned those expectations? Well, I expect an A, you know, that sort of thing. Life is filled with those expectations. The idea that I needed to get married by a certain age or that I needed to do, you know, all of these. But where am I in this? Now, again, this, this is a privilege. But if you can get there, it's tremendous because it makes you able to see the world much more clearly. You see your relationships so much more clearly. Who really is your family? Family for me is who shows up. It is not blood. It's who shows up. Who wants a relationship with me and is willing to nurture that and vice versa, right? Who are your true friends versus not? I've been through so many difficult times in my life that it's really parsed out and carved out who are the people that are not necessarily really friends, right? So who is your family now in this moment? (laughs) Um, Well, depends how you define family. Here's how I define family. Um, My brother's family, my sister-in-law who's known me, I've known her since I was 16 years old. I consider her my older sister and their girls, my nieces, my daughters, they call them sea stars, S-E-A stars, Mm -hmm. you know, like a different kind of sister. And I have wonderful friends, a small group of wonderful friends. My first big mentor professionally is a black woman and she is my daughter's godmother. That's family. She folded me into her family because she saw I really didn't have one around me. That's family for me. Mm, I like that. Carmen, in the end, if you were to define America in a word or a sentence, even a phrase, how would you do that? A difficult, magical place. Oh my gosh, I love it. I love it. Difficult, difficult, difficult. Sometimes the difficult part is a lot bigger than 50%. Like sometimes, (laughs) like right now, it's about 80%, but it's also full of such magic. What other place could I have had the life I've had? Yeah with all of its heartache, but still it's there. It's there. And the ability for for cultures to come together is the most incredible magical thing that I love so much and I never take for granted. Even as I travel the world, there's nothing like it. I love it. Now, where can people find your book? Do you have any preferences or should they just go on Amazon and feed the capitalistic society (laughs) that America is? (laughs) Oh, that falls under the difficult category. Um, No, please go. My website is just Carmen Rita Wong and a pop up will come up and you just click 
And what it does is it brings you to my publisher, Penguin Random House, and you can click on whatever bookseller you prefer. I prefer, of course, the indies, <laughs> but wherever you, you know, wherever you, you can. And thank you so much for reading. I don't take for granted people reading or listening. I did the audiobook and I love doing it. So however you decide to consume and let me know what you think. This was so good, Carmen. And it was so much fun. I know we couldn't do this in person, but we are both in New York. Um, yes. Would love, love, love to connect at some point whenever you're comfortable. Would love to do that. That would be great. Hey, look, it's warming up. We can, we can be outdoors. Absolutely. This was <laughs> so good. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sadia. It's been a pleasure. Before I wrap up, I just want to say, don't forget to buy Carmen's book. It is so, so, so good. And it's about human emotions and family dynamics, which all of us can totally relate to. Also, if you didn't know this, Immigrantly, in collaboration with Refillion Media, just launched our true crime podcast called Invisible Hate, which will focus on worst hate crimes perpetrated against minorities. This is a true crime podcast with a purpose. If you haven't subscribed to it, please do alongside Immigrantly. It's on every streaming platform. We'll be releasing episodes weekly, so... We're hoping that you'll support us in that space as well. Don't forget to check out our Patreon. That's how we grow, guys. That's how we sustain ourselves. Links are everywhere on our social media. And again, if you don't follow us on socials, please do subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to our podcast. This episode was produced by me, Sadia Khan. Written by Michaela Strother. Our editorial review was done by Shay Yu. And our editor is Hazik Ahmed Farid. Until next time, take care. New Jersey is providing truly historic tax relief. Living in New Jersey is about to become more affordable under the new Anchor Property Tax Relief Program created by Governor Murphy and the legislature. The state will soon deliver over $2 billion in tax relief to more than 2 million homeowners and renters. Eligible New Jerseyans can receive up to $1,500 apply today. Even if you didn't qualify under the previous program, you may now. The deadline is February 28th. Visit anchor.nj.gov.